A guy named Chuck Ellis recently tweeted, Dear past self, why didn't you download the NPR One app sooner? Don't deprive yourself of audio bliss. Also, don't eat that cheeseburger. Thank you, Chuck. NPR One is ready to make your commute, waiting in line, or waiting for a cheeseburger better. Find NPR ONE on your app store. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Gloria Calderon Kellett is a writer, a comedian, a producer, an actress. She's worked on Rules of Engagement, How I Met Your Mother, Drunk History. Her latest project is a reboot of One Day at a Time. You might remember the old Norman Lear sitcom. The show's about a Cuban-American household where three generations all live under the same roof. In a lot of ways, she based the show on her own childhood. Gloria's parents came to the States from Cuba. She remembers when she was about to turn 15, she made a big, big decision. She didn't want to have a quinceanera. I feel bad about it now, but at the time I just, I had been reading about it and I just thought, what? This is, they'd literally dress you up and be like, all right, she got a period at 12 and now she's a woman and who wants her in the village? Let's dress her up, put some lipstick on this pig and put her out there. Who wants her? I mean, that's, and I was like, what? And now it's obviously not that. And, and, but the fact that it had roots in that, I was like, no, I won't do it. I want a car. It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk with Gloria and her co-creator, Mike Royce, about One Day at a Time. They'll tell me how after years of writing snarky, offbeat jokes for TV, it was really nice to try out, you know, sincerity. Uh, there are definitely shows I worked on where no feelings would have... N- you don't pitch feelings. It's, <laughs> it's how many jokes can I think up right now? Later on, I'll talk with Todd Mayfield. He just wrote a new biography of his father, Curtis Mayfield. It wasn't always easy being Curtis Mayfield's kid. It took Todd a while to get used to the idea. I mean, myself and many of my siblings really did like to downplay the fact that that was my father. And, you know, he gave us a lot of unwanted attention. But I think the older that I've become, I started to appreciate, actually, what he did more and more. And the rapper St. John will tell us about the song that changed his life. All it takes, it turns out, is one Jay-Z track. Plus, I'll tell you about a guy who makes gangster rap feel relevant again, 25 years later. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Gloria Calderon-Kellett and Mike Royce. The two of them created One Day at a Time. It's a reboot of the classic Norman Lear sitcom from the 70s. Gloria and Mike collaborated with Lear on the concept of the show, what kind of family to focus on, how to translate a setup and jokes and bits that are 30 years old. The result is a show that captures Norman Lear's spirit pretty perfectly. It's sincere. It's got a satirical bite. It takes a old format, multi-camera sitcom, and it turns it into a reflection of our world today. One that's diverse, kind of messy, really, really funny. The show centers around a three-generation Cuban-American family, all of whom live in the same house. Penelope, played by Justina Machado, is the main character. She's a mom and a veteran. She works as a nurse, and she lives with her two kids and her mom, who's played by Rita Moreno. In this scene, Penelope's teenage daughter just broke the news to her mom and her grandma. She doesn't want to have a quinceanera. And this one, I don't like her anymore. (laughs) I don't care if you like me. Sounds like you're both on the same page. Your daughter does not want to have a quinces. What? What? We already booked the room, and I found a great band. Okay, it's a DJ. Okay, it's your brother with an iPod and a playlist, but it's a very good playlist. I researched the history of quinceañeras and found out they're totally misogynistic. She's been reading again. Why do you let her read? I know, Mommy. I let her do math, too. I'm a monster. Gloria, Mike, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Did you just get 
like a call from Norman Lear saying, hi, this is the most powerful comedy producer in television history? Kinda. Yes. I, I was coming out of a spin class. I like to say that because I go twice a year and I kind of want credit for having gone that one time. Uh, and my agent said, you know, Norman would like to have lunch with you. And I was like, what? Okay. <laughs> like, what do you say? Okay. Like, you didn't, you had never, you didn't no. know him or. No. So I went in and, and he's incredibly disarming and the rest is history. What about you, Mike? How did you get on board this train? Oh, I just want to point out I did not get lunch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm realizing that as you tell your story. And yeah, they had a meeting with me. Um, I was, you know, nominally available and it was the same kind of thing very daunting which i'm thinking about doing this reboot and um to have anything to do with norman shows and somehow you know trying to trying to take a an existing norman show and somehow rethink it was like crazy once they were talking about okay it's really we just want to do a new show with the same premise then it became then my brain started percolating uh percolating a lot but it was um it's still for a long time just how would that's you know people are going to be comparing this and um so it was a great challenge but it was very you know alarming <laughs> at first did you have memories or feelings about the norman lear sitcoms of the era when norman lear had every was like five of the top 10 shows on television um or was that just something that uh had passed from your mind or never entered it i'm really young mike is an old man <laughs> uh-huh I, the, the viewers true, should just know the truth yeah uh no i was uh the original i'm not i'm not that young sadly um the original came out in 75 which is when i was born so i didn't i that all kind of bypassed me i learned about all in the family when i was in my 20s and just wanted to find out so i went to the paley now the paley center what was the museum of tv and radio and i would spend hours watching a bunch of old shows and kind of teaching myself television uh but i feel both like i was robbed that i didn't get to experience it in in real time and also a little bit grateful because i think it would have been so much more daunting for me had i known yeah you know when i was it's it's such a uh, you know i am do remember even though i was young um, I mean, I wasn't allowed to watch All in the Family because it was I was too young. Um, I certainly watched most of the other shows. But what's in so then rewatching a little bit as we're preparing for the show, not just All in the Family. I mean, not just one at him, but All in the Family and the other sure. ones as well. I, I really was struck by when you're a young kid, you don't pay attention to the emotional parts as much, um, especially when they're adult issues. And I think that's really where we live, just separately, Gory and I, creatively, um, on the other shows we've done. That's what we love, funny stuff that then leads to some dramatic stuff. And I was really struck by how much, you know, Norman is, boy, does, you know, those shows wear their heart on their sleeve. And, and you know, the uh, I can't even get into it. I'm going to cry while I'm, like, describing <laughs> it, so I'm just going to stare at the wall here and try to get through it. But, you know, there's a scene where I think it's after Gory has a miscarriage, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and, you know, uh, she's uh, in the hospital and, and Archie is comforting her uh, and he's there. And, of course, he's just awkward and doesn't know what to say. And I think she says something like, uh, you know, um, uh, I can't remember. I'm mixing up scenes. But, like, that, that was a super emotional scene. And there's a part where she says, I'm not your little girl anymore. And he says, you know, don't you don't you ever say that. And it's it's like this really I think the term now is kitchen sink uh, drama, but it was really powerful. And, you know, those are when you're a kid, you're like, uh, where's the funny part? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think that, you know, the last 25 years of the television sitcom have moved, have sort of self-consciously moved away from those values, which became in some ways self-parodic in the 80s. I mean, if you think of, like, what's the yes. top thing you could complain about in 1994, it's a very special episode of something, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That feeling like we have to have feelings in our sitcoms and we're visiting. And, yeah. you know, what's the greatest sitcom of the 90s is Seinfeld, and it's a show that is explicitly right. about the opposite of that, that. How can we lower the stakes as much as possible <laughs> and then amplify the stakes on the least important thing ever, right? <laughs> and no hugging. Right, exactly. And um, and I wonder, like, how it's different to write that kind of material, write material that wears its heart on its sleeve, 
um, after 20 or 25 years of people running away from that as fast as they can for the most part. I mean, it's just what it, it's a weird thing because this is what we've been writing anyway. So it doesn't feel like we just started writing this. It feels like this is always what we've been writing. And right. as a playwright, this is what I've been writing for the last 10 years, too. So it just feels like, oh, my gosh, I'm so glad I get to do this at work now instead of for free. <laughs> I'm glad somebody is paying me now to do to to do this stuff and to write in this way because it's what I like. And, and that's not always what's in vogue. You know, there are definitely shows I worked on where no feelings would have. N- you don't pitch feelings. It's, right. it's how many books <laughs> can I think up right now? Uh, and and that's great too. And that was fun too. But it it wasn't. I think it's just we continued to do the thing that we love doing. And, and thankfully, <laughs> no, that's right. It's it's. I mean, to your point, it's you know when the Seinfeld came out. I mean, even Raymond that I worked on at the time was considered against the grain just because every show wanted to be Seinfeld and still continues to want to be Seinfeld for a good reason. It's a yeah, fantastic it's a great show. show. But I'm I re-watching do... it right now, by the way. Oh, really? That's yes. it? No, my son is getting it. You know, so... It's God, so good. It's so good. It's amazing that it has Even not really... Even the pilot is really good. Yeah. I forgot. It's so good. It's anyway. funny if you watch the pilot because at the end, if you watch the DVD commentary, at the end, as it's fading out, <laughs> Jerry Seinfeld says, well, that was like watching a school play. Oh. <laughs> like he's so upset oh, at the pacing. Oh, my God. I think stuff. it's great. I thought it was so great. <laughs> yeah. Gloria, when you got this job, uh, you know, when Mike got this job, he can always just cop out and say, look, I'm just a hired sitcom <laughs> hack. You know what I mean? Like, I, I've I'm just, done it before. I'm just there to say, let, let's close that beat with a laugh or whatever it is that sitcom writers say to each other, right? Um, you are uh, the Cuban-American woman who got the Cuban-American sitcom. Yeah. <laughs> Did that come with, like, a series of responsibilities? Of like wild anxiety? Mm. Yes, it did. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Of course it did. Also, not even just that. I mean, the Latino, Latinx community I, I know was also watching and also wanting something. And so I felt a responsibility to them to be specific to my experience so that they would say, yep. She got it right. And I feel I that I that resonated with me. And I'm not, you know, that was the response I had been hoping for in my the vision board in my mind was that we would get that type of feedback. So, yeah, this is I, I was prepared for uh, the hate and uh, and have so far it's been it's been pretty. It's the opposite. Warm. Come on. Yeah, it's been a big hug. <laughs> yeah, it's been a big hug. Did you nice. get. Uh, like story ideas from every Cuban American person on earth. Like, did Jose Canseco send you a note? Not yet. That said, I can't wait for all the Cubans to reach out. <laughs> She's so, terrified. There's been uh, there's been a lot of I mean Twitter and stuff. Yes, people, now right? on Twitter. Yeah, now yeah. on Twitter, people are people are reaching out. But I have I have just so I mean there's so much from my actual family. So we haven't you know talked to me in season five. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, it's it's unreal. It's unreal. Gloria, I don't want to put you too deep on the spot. But, Go ahead. <laughs> uh, what's something that came out of your own family experience that found its way onto the On the screen? show? Oh, my God. <laughs> so, I mean, well, the, I mean, the quinceañeras. I did not have a quinceañera. I was the first cousin in my family not to. That was the story I told Norman in our first meeting is uh, I feel bad about it now. But at the time, I just I had been reading about it and I just thought, what? This is they'd literally dress you up and be like, all right, she got a period at 12 and now she's a woman. And who wants her in the village? Let's dress her up, put some (laughs) lipstick on this pig and put her out there. Who wants her? I mean, that's and I was like, what? And now it's obviously not that. And and, but the fact that it had roots in that, I was like, no, I won't do it. I want a car. (laughs) And and look, I also saw my parents are incredible hard workers. I saw how much. Uh, went into my cousin's beautiful quinceañeras. And they're like a wedding. I mean, people really go into debt to put these things on for their kids. I knew I wanted to go to college, and that was much more important to me. And so I just said, I, I don't want you to spend the money either. Uh, and they were like, okay, and respectful. And I promised them a big Catholic wedding in a church, and I did it. I <laughs> gave it to him. Get off my back. Uh so that I told Norman that story, and he was like, "That's great." And then I told Mike that story, and he he was like, "That's my daughter." Well, my, the same my daughter, thing. if my daughter was Cuban, that would exactly be what she did. Yes. But after that, none of my other cousins had quinceañeras, and I the, I broke some this weird tradition, and now I kind of want my daughter. I have an eight year old. I kind of want her to have a quinceas because I think it would be kind of nice. <laughs> uh, also, because she's half uh, she's my husband is you know Irish English Polish. 
and so I want her to remember her Cuban side. I want that to, you know, I'm now more Cuban than ever holding up the flags <laughs> and whatnot because I don't want my kids to lose to lose any of the cultural specificity. Was there a part of your professional career, Gloria, where you felt like you had to move away from your Cubanness? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> she says too loud. You know, I my very first show I was on Quintuplets for Fox, Andy Richter. I was on that show as the diversity hire. You get to do that once. Uh, some people, if you're diverse, which I I am female and I ch- I check two boxes. Mm-hmm. I'm diverse. I am Hispanic and a female. Uh, And the moment you get in there, everybody knows you're the diversity spot. And the first thing I felt like I had to do was make them know that, no, I deserve to be here. And I'm going to show you by being exactly like you. And that is no one told me I had to do that. But I did feel like I'm so different that if I don't assimilate here, I'm going to get eaten up. And that's what I tried to do. And it was really hard. It was hard. It was hard because you want to say your job as a writer is to bring your experience to the table. And so when you don't have that, you sort of you do yourself a disservice. But I had nobody to, to tell me that I use I had I was sitting next to the other. We, there was one other woman in that room who I love, Jen Fisher. Shout out to Jen Fisher. <laughs> uh, and we would sit next to each other sometimes. And then I was pulled aside and said, you know, women do that. They sit next to each other. You, you're doing yourself a disservice. But, I mean, some, a writer did tell me that. And so I stopped sitting next to her and said we would text each other constantly things that were happening. But uh, so, Mostly Andy Richter. So, yes. Oh, no, Andy he Richter. was lovely. He was lovely. But, uh, but it was, yeah, at first you want people to know that you can write these characters as well. I can write Schneider as well as he can write Penelope, you know. And, and I say that because both of us, I think, can do the other really well. And so I really felt like in order to make a career for myself, and one of the big things as well that happened right after that show for me, sorry to go on a tangent, but uh, is I got offered the George Lopez show. And I thought as a Latina, I was like, if I take this show right now in my career as my second job, they're going to think I can just write that. And I got How I Met Your Mother at the same time at a much lower position and a lower pay scale. And I felt like I can write How I Met Your Mother way – at the time, too, I was, you know, 29. So I was like, I don't know family stuff right now. I don't have kids. I don't – I dating stories and, you know, <laughs> jokes. Let's do that. <laughs> Sorry. You're getting full uncut Gloria right now. Uh, and so uh, I, I took How I Met Your Mother. And I do feel like by doing those shows and letting people see that I could do the range, because I know a lot of Latino writers that get caught up in the, oh, they're a Latino writer, so they just write Latino jokes and perspective, and that's not true of us. So that's a very long answer. Yes is the answer. <laughs> Should have just stayed with the yes. <laughs> I want to play another clip from One Day at a Time. Uh, and my guests are uh, Gloria Calderon Kellett and uh, Mike Royce, who are the showrunners of the program. Um, so Rita Moreno is on the show. I had no idea she was in her 80s. Mm. Jiminy Christmas is she. <laughs> a babe. She's a babe, and she's working out there, too. Yes. Um, she's not just standing in the corner and making a slight remark. Um, but anyway, uh, her, her character's name is Lydia. She's the grandmother on the show. And... Um, she just kind of doesn't she as you would expect you know she's a first generation immigrant and does not see the world the same way her daughter and granddaughter do mom this stuff might not seem like a big deal but it chips away at you you gotta call scott out why would i waste my time that is right you will never win men over by confronting them you flirt with them you hypnotize them (laughs) and then you do whatever the hell you want And then they will think they are the boss, but really, you are the boss. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That is what my mom believes. <laughs> <laughs> and my mom has my mom still has a very thick accent and and bless her she she was a businesswoman. She worked for many years without they both came here when they were 15, both my parents from Cuba. And uh, didn't get to go to college because they had to jump right in the workforce to live to pay their bills. Uh, But my mom uh, graduated from high school, American high school, not knowing the language at 16 because she was just really smart. The education system in Cuba is great. And just did like a trade school, a secretarial program, and then worked her way up, as did my dad. He started as a mechanic in a dealership and worked his way up to management uh, just by sheer work and, uh, and delight because they're wonderful, wonderful people. But... You know, my mom really felt like in the business place, 
She would be running meetings and she'd have that thick accent and would feel like, you have to look great. I go in and I look beautiful and they are better to me. <laughs> that she believed that. And so her the, the fact that I'm a writer and dress, you know, in jeans and Converse, like, horrifies her. She just doesn't understand how I'm being t- how I'm taken seriously at all. We'll finish up my conversation with Mike Royce and Gloria Calderon-Kellett after a short break. They'll tell me about what it was really like to work with Norman Lear. And no spoilers. It's as fun as you'd think it would be. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, before we get back to the show, Latino USA has something special this week, a radio documentary about the controversial Puerto Rican independence fighter Oscar Lopez Rivera who was given clemency by President Obama just a few days before he left office. It's a story with secret identities and safe houses and FBI manhunt and even a little bit of revolution. Find Latino USA on the NPR One app and npr.org slash podcasts. A quick thank you to our sponsor who brings you this message, ZipRecruiter. They understand that posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top sites. And now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 200-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Click. Right now, Bullseye listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash Bullseye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Gloria Calderon-Kellett and Mike Royce. Together, they collaborated with Norman Lear to make a reboot of his sitcom, One Day at a Time. The show's on Netflix now. Gloria, I want to ask you this. So you are, um, you know, you have a template in the original One Day at a Time, but... The sh- the show's characters are not that close to that. I think they probably are a lot closer to uh, your family and maybe to some extent Mike's family. Mm-hmm. What's it like to cast actors uh, to play the most important people in your lives? <laughs> well, with Rita, it was very easy because Rita and my mother resemble each other. They're both 95 pounds wet <laughs> and, uh, you know, boob popsicles, but powerhouse, <laughs> powerhouse sort of delightful women. Uh, so that I said to Norman in our first meeting when he said, what's your mom like? I said, well, picture Rita Moreno, but with red. And then I pulled out a photo. And I mean, and it's funny that when Rita first wore the wig, I'd keep on on set. I'd keep on being like, oh, my mom. Ke-. Oh, no, it's Rita. And then one time I was at the monitors and she goes, oh, is Nandi here? Which is her daughter, Fernanda. And she runs over and it's me. And she's like, oh, no, no, I guess why? Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so that was Norman picks up. Norman's Willy Wonka. So you say something and he makes it happen. So it was like, Rita Miranda. Oh, let's, let's call her. Oh, let's get her on oh the sure. And I kind of thought he was joking. And then with Norman, you know, the ambassadors and presidents are calling him all the time. So, uh, so that was easy. We, uh, we offered the part to Rita. She was the only one that didn't read. And that was like a, once we had read, it was like, oh, okay. All right. Well, that's we got an egot. So what? What do people want? <laughs> yeah. Everyone else can just phone it in, and then the, the plan had always been to get an egot. Yeah. Yes. Like if Rita yes. Moreno Let's had get said one of no, the 12. you would have just cast Whoopi Goldberg. Right. Right. The, the original plan was all egots, but there are no twelve-year-old. Yes, uh, EGOTs. it's true. Uh, and then, and then, truthfully, Justina Machado walked in and t- just blew our minds. Well, that's what I can. I mean. So we have Rita Moreno, great, and we're feeling good. And then you realize you write a whole script in the center of the show. I mean, we really uh, – I was having tons of anxiety. We're dead if we can't find the person who is all of these things. Yes. Who can funny, play drama? Charming, who can badass, be funny? I, oh. dra- right. Emotional. I mean, like so many boxes to check uh, of skill. And then she came in. She was the first person that we saw with Norman. It was a big day. Norman Glear's casting again. It was kind of like a cool. And she comes in, and she did the first scene, which was funny, and she we laughed our, our off. And then the second, she did a dramatic thing. And I'm not. I mean, you know, I don't. But we were crying in and the audition. And chicken skinned. It was ridiculous what yeah. this woman came in and did to us in seven minutes. Yes. And then she laughed, and Norman goes, "Well, that's a good start." <laughs> no, no, no. That's, no, no. No, that's, that's the, her. That's her, Norman. But to his, to be fair, it's like it sounded okay. If that's the first one, how far do we have to right. go? It must be. But of course, it was you know all all over already. So I want to play a clip from the show's second episode. Um, this scene is about Penelope, who's Justina Machado's character, and, and like we said, she is a veteran who left the army 
works now as a nurse in a small doctor's office. And um, as we listen in, she just got home from work, and she's telling her daughter and her mom about a frustrating meeting she had with a male coworker she calls a bobo. Let's take a listen. I barely got a word, and before bobo started interrupting me, talking over me, I couldn't even get my point across. Well, that's just sexist. No. He's not smacking me on the ass and going, Oye, mamita! <laughs> oh, that makes me miss your abuelo. <laughs> you want to see real sexism? Be a woman in the army, okay? You got a 22-year-old white boy from South Carolina marching behind you going, Is it hot out here or is it you? Of course it was hot out there. It was a freaking desert. <laughs> but you want to know how I dealt with that bobo? By being a better soldier than him. And eventually that's how they saw me, not as a woman at all. Mike Royce, you did a great show called Unlisted uh, that was set in the world of active military personnel who were not in combat uh, and their families and so forth. And um, I wonder when, when you were making One Day at a Time, uh, did you decide to bring that context, that military context, into the picture for Justina Machado's character? Well, it started with Norman. The first day we met with Norman, he's like, we have to do something about the VA. I mean, that's where Norman comes from, more than just you know any kind of micromanaging or anything like that. He has an idea of something he wants to tackle. And then how can we do it? How can we work it out? And at first it was going to be the ex-husband is a is – a, and he still is a, a veteran. Um, but we started talking and thinking, you know, there's no reason not to make our main character also a veteran because there are so many different nuanced veteran stories across America, especially over the last 15, 20 years with our approach to warfare. There are – Millions of these people with millions of stories to tell, and it our, really our approach to warfare being frequent, <laughs> yes, and uh, uh, relentless, extensive, yeah, yeah, um, and and the awareness now of what warfare does to people is obviously a lot greater, and rectifying that has not really been the focus of the government. Uh, it probably has been more than it was in the past, but it obviously is a long way to go. So it's a real issue, and it, 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 you know, we wanted to make sure it felt organic to this family. So it gave her a real deep biography um, that that we can we can uh, illustrate. And you know, at the same time, it's not a show about you know every episode isn't about uh, uh, veterans' issues. We can right. pick our spots and and when they're relevant to the family. Um, were there things that um, you had to that, that you were worried you were going to get wrong? Uh, when you were taking on all of these capital I issues, <laughs> underrepresented groups, so on and so forth. Well, with my encyclopedic knowledge of Latino culture, <laughs> I felt we were in good hands. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> I mean, yes, yes. The stuff for me that I really wanted to get right is that I'm not gay and Mike's not gay. And so we wanted to, having such a... a rich relationship with so many uh, gay and lesbian uh, people in my life, I felt a great responsibility to do right by them. And so that's where we are so grateful and lean on the the women in our room who did so much to fill in uh, where Mike and I could not on those stories because we really, to tell a coming out story, to do that in a way that would really reach uh, people and, and start conversation, that was something we really took seriously and... and, and Wanted to represent for sure, and I mean the whole and any issue that we talked about on the show, it really all gets back to specificity, and I think it really gets back to who do you, who you're populating your room with. They need to be talented writers, but they should also bring in a lot of different points of view, and that's where diversity, which is for some reason a dirty word now, <laughs> is super duper important. But the way we felt like okay, we're in the right direction, is that we're taking people weighed in from their specific points of view, having lived as a Latino as a woman, for that matter, <laughs> even as a white guy sometimes. Yes, um, yes. And as a as a, a gay person, and and so we're taking you know these are real people with real experiences. So try to you know keep it keep it there. Well, Mike Gloria, thank you so much for taking all this time to be on Bullseye. It was really great to get to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Likewise, Gloria Calderon Kellett and Mike Royce are the showrunners of One Day at a Time, which is on Netflix now.
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. St. John, that's J-H-N, is an MC from Brooklyn via Guyana. Born Carlos St. John, he doesn't have a full-length album out yet. But the singles that he's released have millions and millions of listens and views each. He's part of an emerging new class of Brooklyn rappers like Designer, Fresher, Casanova. But unlike those guys, St. John hovers in a mellower space. I walked in the corner with the body screaming dollar. Never saw the back, but looking like Pablo in the fall. This gonna make him feel the way like Tony Kilmanola. You already know. You already His voice is usually doing something in between singing and rhyming. And it's all over sparse, kind of otherworldly beats. He started rapping early in life. He was about 12 or 13. He remembers the artist that inspired it all, Jay-Z. He remembers the album, Volume 3, The Life and Times of S. Carter. Here, with the song that changed his life, is St. John and Jay-Z's Dope Man. I remember exactly where I was when this record came out. I was actually in Guyana, South America. I was in my room. I, w- I remember this super coarse bed. It might as well have been like cardboard, with the wooden panels underneath it. And it was like a single bed and... Uh, with this on tape, volume three, dope man on tape, cassette. And I'm listening to it through the boom box, like really a boom box. This was like a mini series for me. I'm what hope floats, man, a ghetto spokesman. I just think he was telling his story, right? Because even in that time in hip-hop, we just wanted to hear stories, music and art and film, just, they're just stories. But he's painting the picture using details that I can identify with, not because I was living that life, just because people close enough to me were living like that. Now, I'm in Guyana, thousands of miles away, but my family is in New York, and my brother's, he's on trial trying to beat a murder case. So these things were so elementary to me. I I got it. It wasn't just entertainment, but it was entertaining, but it felt real. I could understand the movie. I could identify with the people playing the roles. How come you label your brand a dope? Volume one and spread it through the slums. Fed it to the young with total disregard. Your honor, the state seeks the maximum charge. He was talking about his life, but it was almost in third person. In the first person, he was shifting the perspectives at any given time. He's talking about himself and how the world is viewing him and how he's responsible for uh, shifting the culture in a sort of negative way and the way people are viewing him. And it felt colorful. He understood words and language. So he was using that, but he was painting you a picture that felt like what he was experiencing. He was the first guy to make it out that I could see that it was it was real. Because I grew up in a hood in New York and I grew up in a hood in Guyana. So I saw someone make it out in real time. It wasn't a history book that I was sort of reading through. It was real time watching somebody escape poverty in the traps of the environment that were familiar to me that I was trying to navigate through myself. It was it was so truthful. It felt like he was just communicating a simple truth. St. John, with the song that changed his life, Jay-Z's Dope Man. You can check out the video for St. John's single, Roses, on our website, MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you've been listening to the show for long enough, you know that there aren't many musicians more important to me than Curtis Mayfield. Curtis is what I turn to when I'm feeling down. Mayfield was a brilliant singer and an influential guitarist, but most of all, he was a songwriter. He wrote dozens of hits for himself, for his group, The Impressions, and for a whole world of Chicago soul singers. 
He and the Impressions made records about the civil rights struggle when that still got you banned from the radio. When he went solo in the 70s, his songs got even more pointed. He could sing a sweet love song, but his passion always shone through. Curtis's son, Todd Mayfield, remembers a lot of his father's life. He took all those memories, threw in a bunch of research and family interviews, and wrote a biography of his dad. It's called Traveling Soul, The Life of Curtis Mayfield. It's out now. Let's listen to a little of Curtis's 1970 classic, Move On Up. Todd Mayfield, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So, Todd, I feel like if my dad was uh, as famous and legendary as your dad was, I would spend my entire life uh, running away from him and his legacy. Uh, so what led you to want to dedicate, you know, what I presume was years uh, to writing about his life? Well, that's an interesting observation because... I mean, myself and many of my siblings really did like to downplay the fact that that was my father. You know, he gave us a lot of unwanted attention. But I think the older that I've become, I started to appreciate, actually, what he did um, more and more. And so, you know, if you look at everything, the body of work, uh, his influence on other artists and and society in general, um, it's quite remarkable. And I decided that um, I should I should write about it. What did he talk about when he talked about his childhood when he was still alive? Well, he just talked about how poor they were, mostly. Um, you know, they all lived in one room together, did not have their own bathroom, you know, had a, sh- a shared bathroom down the hall with uh, other people who lived in this particular building where he lived for several years before uh, Cabrini-Green. How did your father pick up music? Well, my great-grandmother, the Reverend Annabelle Mayfield, had a church here in Chicago called the Traveling Soul Spiritualist Church. And as a part of her service and, and you know, her, her celebration every week, um, they had a choir. And so my father, along with a young man named at the time named Jerry Butler, uh, were in the choir along with other, other kids. And um, that was, I believe, his first exposure to to music. Um, later on, he, you know, he, he picked up the guitar and taught, him, taught himself how to play the guitar. But my grandmother also had a big effect on him in terms of just introducing him to poets like Paul Lawrence Dunbar and others that, you know, that kind of intrigued him. And she was very well read, even though, you know, they were very poor. Um, so all of those things kind of came together, at, you know, in, um, in my grandmother's, my great grandmother's church. Your father, Curtis, met Jerry Butler in the church choir, and it was with Jerry Butler that he formed the impressions, or at least formed the impressions out of uh, another vocal group. Right. The bits and pieces of another vocal group. What were they trying to do when they started? Well, I mean, at that time, you know, there were doo-wop groups almost on every corner, you know, in Chicago and a lot of other major cities. So I think that, you know, it was just a way out for a lot of those kids back then, you know, um, None were really highly educated. I mean, my dad dropped out of high school in ninth grade, so and never looked back. But you know, he he found himself at an early age. That's what he always used to say. So he he knew what he wanted to do um, as a child. So they just kind of got together and 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 started working on their sound and and um, were fortunate enough to have a, a big hit with their first record for Your Precious Love. Well, let's take a listen to the impressions from 1958 with Jerry Butler on lead vocals. Uh, and your for your precious love
That song was sort of like Curtis's introduction to the record business and the rest of the band for that matter, or the rest of the group for that matter, in that they recorded it as the impressions. And when they got the records back, they said Jerry Butler and the impressions. Right. Why did that matter? Well, I believe it mattered because, you know, they felt that they were a group. They were all together. They were not uh, Jerry as a solo artist in a a backup group uh, singing behind them. I thought they felt that they were in it together and they, they all had their contributions to making it work. And, you know, but it was something that record labels commonly did back then and in terms of their marketing and, and they'd always put, you know, try to put a front guy out and, um, you know, and that's what happened. You know, there were, there was some animosity towards Jerry at first. They possibly thought that, that he had something to do with it, which he didn't. Obviously after that record was a success, Jerry went solo. So it kind of, just kind of how it went back then. It's interesting. Like, not only did the record company put Jerry Butler out front so that there would be a front man for the group, but as soon as they had a hit record, the practice at the time was to split the group into two and so that you had two touring acts. You had the Impressions touring with somebody else singing that hit record, and you had Jerry Butler touring as Jerry Butler of Jerry Butler in the Impressions. Right, right. Well, you know, it didn't end up working out that way with regard to the impressions because, um, you know, they kind of the group kind of fell apart for a little bit while uh, Jerry was doing this thing as a solo act. Um, but then, of course, a couple of years later, you know, my dad put everything back together and um, and stepped into the lead role. We'll continue my conversation with Todd Mayfield after a break. He'll tell me about how even after being paralyzed from the neck down, his father Curtis still managed to record a really, really good solo album. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Green Chef, the easy, organic way to cook. Green Chef's organic meal kits deliver fresh ingredients and healthy recipes right to you. Feel great about the food you cook and where it comes from. No planning, no shopping, only delicious dinners in no time. Choose the plan for you with options like vegan, paleo, gluten-free, and more. Go to greenchef.com slash bullseye to get $50 off. Green Chef, deliciously simple. One other thing, Bullseye listeners, on Saturday, February 11th, we're going to be bringing you the best in stand-up comedy live at the Brooklyn Academy of Music as part of BAM and WNYC's Radio Love Fest. The Bullseye Comedy Night. You'll hear comedy from greats hand-selected by me, like Solomon Giorgio, Maeve Higgins, Hari Kondabolu, and Phoebe Robinson. Yeah, that's right. The co-host of Two Dope Queens and solo host of So Many White Guys is going to be on the Bullseye stage live and in person. It'll all be held down by the amazing and very, very funny Guy Branham, host of our sister show, Pop Rocket. Plus, I'm going to be making an appearance by video. Again, that's Bullseye's Comedy Night on Saturday, February 11th at BAM in Brooklyn. Tickets are on sale now. Just go to MaximumFun.org and scroll down to live shows for tickets and more info. Or Google Radio Love Fest. It's Bullseye. We'll get back to my interview with Todd Mayfield in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you about Pop Rocket, Bullseye's sister show. It's a weekly conversation about popular culture featuring some of the funniest and sharpest minds that exist on this earth. This week, Pop Rocket's got a very special guest host, my friend, Jordan Morris. He's the co-host of my comedy show, Jordan, Jesse, Go. Hey, Jordan, what's popping on Pop Rocket this week? Hey, Jesse, this week on Pop Rocket, we're taking a look at our favorite movies, film, and music from our childhoods and seeing if they hold up today. We talked about James Bond, Sex in the City, The Simpsons, Seinfeld, etc., 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 to see if they are still entertaining and still hold up in this new age of being soups woke. <laughs> oh, man, I, I watched Seinfeld as an adult. I'm going to give that strong thumbs up for still entertaining and a strong sideways thumb for wokeness. Anyway, Pop Rocket, get it wherever you find your podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Todd Mayfield. He just wrote a biography of his father, the late soul singer Curtis Mayfield. I want to play the first impressions hit that 
the first impressions smash hit that Curtis Mayfield wrote, Gypsy Woman. Let's take a listen. From nowhere through a caravan around campfire light. A lovely woman in motion with hair as dark as night. Her eyes were like that of a cat in the dark. That hypnotized me with love. She was a gypsy woman, a gypsy woman. There's a few uh, kind of exotic flourishes on that record. You know, there's castanets, which I guess just signify uh, gypsiness. But um, your dad is your dad is really like in that first record created the template for the impression sound. Um, and there's t- two things that are really central to that besides your dad's songs. One is his particular style of singing. One is his particular style of guitar playing. We might as well start with the guitar. What was different about the way that your dad played guitar? Well, first of all, it started with his his tuning, which was totally unconventional and and some would say wrong. Um, but uh, he didn't use standard tuning. He he uh, used F sharp, which that's, that's his signature sound now. So I mean, that's uh, no one else tunes their guitar that way because again, he was self taught and he didn't really know one way or the other, which, you know, which way to go. So he just tuned it to the to the black keys of the piano, which turns out to be F sharp. And, you know, in terms of his, his um, style of play, he, you know, he kind of just strums, you know. he's He didn't use a pick or anything like that. He just kind of, with that light touch, you know, just tickles those, uh, those strings and it, it makes the magic happen that way. Um, so it just made it all so unique. And, of course, as you mentioned, his delivery, um, his lyrical delivery was 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 also unique in that it wasn't you know he didn't have a very powerful voice, but his voice made those lyrics even more powerful. Let's hear another song from the Impressions. This is "Keep On Pushing" from 1964. Keep on pushing. Keep on pushing. I've got to keep on pushing. Mm-hmm. I can't stop now Move up a little higher Some way or somehow Cause I've got my strength And it don't make sense Not to keep You know, Todd, there were a lot of artists in the early 1960s in the world of R&B and soul music, who were taking what amounted to gospel songs and turning them into love songs. There were not a lot of artists in the beginning of the 1960s taking that sort of feeling and structure of gospel songs and turning them into movement songs. And I wonder if your dad ever talked about why and how he started recording songs that were very nearly explicitly, especially in the early 60s, about the movement? Well, I mean, obviously that was a, you know, tumultuous time in our history, and and we're all affected by the, you know, the events that are happening, you know, during our lives. As a as a poor black kid growing up in Chicago, I mean, you're just very observant, and you see what's going on around you, and current events, and stories that uh, that you're told from your elders, and you just put it together and, and keep on pushing really was kind of a, a song that came straight out of the church, you know, with kind of the call and response. And then, um, you know, he changed a couple of words around, like, you know, I've got my strength instead of maybe God gave me strength and something like that. And, um, you know, it just it just worked. It was just very inspirational, very powerful for people. There were stations literally banning that record, right? Yeah, that that and a few others, you know, we're a winner and you know, keep on pushing things like that. Yeah, WLS here, which was a big station back back then, um, they wouldn't play it at all. They, you know, it's just one of those things, and it's just something that obviously 
had to change, and thankfully it did. Let's talk a little bit about why your dad went solo. Um, the Impressions were still making hits in the late 60s. How did he end up uh, becoming a solo artist? Well, I believe that, um, you know, he kind of found the context of being in the group a little bit limiting for him. You know, kind of towards the end of the 60s, you know, after Martin Luther King was assassinated, you know, kind of the civil rights movement turned more into a kind of a black power movement, and it was a little bit more edgy. It was a little bit more street, you know, for, for lack of a better term. And I think he just kind of wanted to express himself in new ways that, you know, being in a group, it just wasn't going to work very well. And um, But not only that, I mean, just from a business perspective, like you mentioned earlier, I mean, you know, you, you go solo, the record company makes the one artist solo, the front man, and then they have two groups. So actually that's what they did. And, and this, this time around um, on the Kurtom label, they brought in a young man named Leroy Hudson to... to um, to play the lead, to take the lead role, uh, lead vocalist in the impressions, and then my dad was uh, was able to go solo, and his his first solo record was was a smash smash album for him. Curtis Mayfield wrote literally dozens of hits for other people, in addition to the songs uh, that he wrote for himself and for the impressions. Um, how did he write? Well, he, he started usually with the you know with his guitar, and again you know mostly he'd be. He had a little room in the house that he used as a studio, and um, you know he would record small snippets of ideas that he that he'd come up with, and then kind of like revisit them later on if he didn't want to flush it all out right then and there. But he he would have a bag of re, of cassette tapes, basically, or reel to reel tapes also, and um, you know he would just come back and, and and refine the idea and and things like that. I mean, so sometimes he would just have fleeting moments where. He he feels something or he hears something in his mind, and he would just go and and, and write it down or, or record it real quick, and then and then build on it later. When you say he would have a bag of tapes, do you mean he would like literally in the house? Literally, yes, like a paper bag full of tapes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but then you know he had briefcases and things like that too. But he would you know so for a while he would have them in a the bag though. It was that's kind of weird, but. Do you remember looking at that bag and, like, at what moment in your life you realized, <laughs> like, the extent to which you should not mess with it? Yeah, to me it was like a garbage bag or something like that. But maybe I didn't. I didn't deal with it. I wouldn't. I wouldn't touch it. You know, he would. He would make things very clear. Uh, don't. Don't deal with that. Don't do this. And you just followed the orders. <laughs> <laughs> I want to play a record from Curtis Mayfield's first solo album, Curtis one of the greatest soul LPs ever recorded, one of the greatest pop LPs of the 20th century. And I think that this song really exemplifies the distance that he went between the late 1960s recordings of the Impressions and his solo work in the 1970s. This song is called If There's Hell Below, We're All Gonna Go. Sisters, brothers and the whitest So there's a big difference between that song, which was the first song on Curtis, Curtis Mayfield's first solo LP, and the tone of the doo-wop-rooted vocal soul records that the Impressions had been cutting for the previous 10 years. Yeah, I can't see the Impressions cutting that, that song. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that would have been a good fit, so... You know, that's exactly what I was talking about, how, how the times were getting a little bit more edgy and, and the music was as well, um, a little funkier. Um, and the messages were just a little bit more explicit, you know. Um, he was always really great about creatively 
saying things without saying it directly, but I think he was being more direct on, on some of these later, uh, on some of the solo uh, material. I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't play any records off of Superfly, um, the movie soundtrack that your dad wrote and performed the music for. Can you give me an idea of how Superfly changed your dad's life? And by that time, I would imagine partly your life. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, that was, um, you know, a multi-platinum selling album and and all the singles as well, too, you know, Superfly and Freddy's Dead. Um, And it it catapulted him into another level um, in terms of, um, you know, the the music business and the record business. But he, you know, he really took that project and ran with it. He was really excited to do it. And, I mean, that's obviously some of his best work. And it was, you know has to be the the most commercially successful project that he's ever done. Let's take a listen to a little bit of Curtis Mayfield and Freddie Stead from the 1972 soundtrack of the movie Superfly. In 1990, your father was paralyzed, actually on stage. Uh, a light standard fell on him. He recorded a record after that. How did he do it? Well, it was very slow and very, you know, difficult for him. Um, you know, when you're a quadriplegic, you can't control your diaphragm. So for the vast majority of the recordings, he was in a wheelchair and, and, and laying back. In, the, in his chair so that he could have as much strength as he could for, you know, for the recordings. And then there, obviously there were a, a huge amount of takes, um, you know, because the lack of strength and the lack, lack of, um, you know, durability that he had at that, at that uh, time. So there were lots of takes and, you know, you had to just chop lines up and, you know, he could deliver a few words at a time. And so it was a very cumbersome kind of process, but he, you know, but, the results were, were pretty good. The album that he made is called New World Order. I want to play one song from it. It's it's a kind of a it's kind of a great song. It's called Here But I'm Gone. How did I get so far gone? Where do I belong? And where in the world did I ever go wrong? If I took the time to replace Todd, how, how do you feel like spending these years with your dad's life, um, and especially the parts of his life that you didn't necessarily know about before, change your picture of him? Writing the book did not change my opinion about my father or my viewpoint. You know, I knew I knew who he was, and and I loved him. So it was it was nothing new about that. Um, but it, you know, it was interesting to find out different things and different tidbits, uh, especially from family members that that actually never came up in all this time. And I'm like, well, why didn't I know about that? And most of the time, they're like, well, you never asked. <laughs> so. So it was it was an interesting process. It was a very healthy process uh, for me, and I, I totally enjoyed the the uh, the effort. Well, Todd, thank you so much for taking all this time to be on Bullseye. It was great to get to talk to you. Thank you, Jesse. I appreciate you having me. Todd Mayfield is the co-author of a new biography of his father, Curtis Mayfield. It's called Traveling Soul: The Life of Curtis Mayfield. We try to end every show with a tip from me on a culture product worth your time. It's the outshot. In a lot of ways, gangster rap is kind of yesterday's news. Kanye West broke out 15 years ago now. 
He's basically famous for being a nerd. The last great gun-toting hip-hop superstar, 50 Cent, feels like a corny novelty act in 2017. G-Funk, that Snoop Dogg, Dr. Dre sound, is still on the radio. But these days, it's spinning on the oldies station. You can pick up an album by an L.A. rapper like Kendrick Lamar or Schoolboy Q. You might hear an allusion to G-Funk, but you won't hear the real thing. The charts are full of Atlanta trap stars and folks like Chance the Rapper who are following in Kanye's footsteps. That's why it's so surprising to hear a gangster rapper sounding vital and fresh in 2017. But YG is that gangster. I'm the only one that made it out the West without Dre. I'm the only one that's about what he say. The only one that got hit and was walking the same day. I tried to pop first, I got popped back. Got hit in the hip, could pop back. Pass me a strap. You know he popped that, so please don't call me no rapping. Why? Cause I be in a spot trapping. All facts, looking on wax. Looking, you put Compton, I put Bompton on the map. YG is from Compton, California. He'd probably call it Bompton. Bloods avoid the letter C. Switching C's for B's is one of the few things that they do might call cute. On an album called Still Brazy, YG had a song called Bool, Balm, and Belective. And just so you know, I, I am not the dude that is going to tell him that the saying is cool, calm, and collected, not collective. You do it. New York street rap was about Timberland boots and snorkel coats, the shadows cast by high-rise projects. L.A. gangster rap is about the weird contrasts of a mid-century suburban paradise turned rotten. Wide streets, big front lawns, palm trees, barbecues and guns. It's a particular kind of nihilism. YG belongs to that tradition. He's profane, misogynist, more proud of violence than worried about its consequences. He's a gangster rapper. Look at my life. Been through it all. Got bullet wounds twice. Still don't know where it came from. Yikes. Everybody want a piece of my pie. I, I, gotta keep guns with me. Be real, I ain't trying to be pretty. Paranoid, got this henny in my kidney. Cause I don't know if they with me or against me. They always said this was how it's gonna be for me. I ain't want to believe. The power of gangster rap comes from its defiance of power. It's defiance of systemic structures. If you'll forgive me a vocabulary word, it is explicitly, unabashedly anti-hegemonic. New York street rap was about being the smartest, scariest rat in the sewer, working the system in the shadows. In L.A., it's about stepping out hard into the always sunshine, barbecuing in the face of murder, cruising through fear in a drop top, it's the boldest defiance. Basically, it's not giving it. Well, for right now, we'll say not giving a care. Gangster rap is definitely a blunt weapon. It's not usually subtle. But that doesn't mean it can't be artful. There's not much code in YG's language, but it's precise and powerful. He's got a song called One Time Coming. It's about running from the police. It's a song about fear, but it doesn't feel that way. YG makes telling his son he might not come home tonight feel defiant. In the video, YG sits on his Rolls Royce, surrounded by cops with their guns drawn. He's wearing a black leather jacket, he's holding a red bandana, and he's flipping the bird at all of them. YG's biggest hit from Still Brazy even bigger than the party records, is a song called FDT. The DT stands for Donald Trump. I'll let you figure out what the F stands for. The song is a simple and clear statement of purpose. It starts with a baseball bat of a lyric. YG says, I like white folks, but I don't like you. I like white folks, but I don't like you. All the in the hood want to fight you. Surprise the nation of Islam ain't tried to find you. Have a rally out, and let you know, sir. Home of the ride, the king ride, we don't give a 
black stoolies, ejected from your rally. Whoa. I'm ready to go right now. Your racist did too much. I'm about to turn Black Panther. Don't let Donald Trump win at cancer. He too rich. He ain't got the answers. He can't make decisions for this country. He gonna crash us. No, we can't be a slave for him. He got me appreciating. Nobody my way more. Hey, Donald. And they one that follows. You gave us your reasons to be president, but we hate yours. Another L.A. rapper, Nipsey Hussle, joins YG on the track. He puts it plainly, too. I'm from a place where you probably can't go, speaking for some people that you probably don't know. The pressure's building up, and it's probably going to blow. L.A. gangster rap is about defying the pain by exploding that pressure. About lifting middle fingers to the system, to racism, to poverty, to fear. YG demands Trump come to him in L.A., home of the Rodney King riots, says YG. We don't give a Now look, I am a married 35-year-old father of two. I own a small business. I give so many But I will say this. I'm glad there's somebody out there who doesn't. That's my outshot. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye, the show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson, with help from Christian Duenas. Our production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Kara Hart and Nick Liao. We had help this week from Shara Morris. Thanks, Shara. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music provided to us by Dan Wally. Our theme music is by The Go Team. They let us use it for free. Our thank you to them and to their label, Light in the Attic Records. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of those are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org, and I guess that is about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.